I want you to come with me as we journey into the forest. A place not just covered in trees or separate from the city, but a home for people, for animals, for life. It's the last ending memory of a time that once was, surrounded by coral reefs that teem with turtles and fish and color, where an abundance of animals, some almost extinct, find refuge in the leaves, the branches, the roots. It's a deep, sacred place filled with spirits who dwell in the most remote corners of the world that humans don't dare to set foot in. This is the last pristine forest in the Philippines. Today, we're exploring two stories about the forest, what happens when our home comes under threat, and what it means when we're willing to die for it. Welcome to Expedition Earth, a podcast where we reconnect to the wonders of our world and find a way to protect them. I'm your host, National Geographic Explorer, Lily Sedegat. Together, we'll rediscover what makes us human. They call her Bai, grandmother, protector, the woman in the mountain. Her hairband cuts into the skyline 1,593 meters above sea level. Her shoulders slope down to the coast below. It takes four days to reach her peak, traveling through the forest, making the slow ascent until you break through the clouds. Bai is creator, the source of fresh water, where all life begins. But on her land, there are places you are forbidden to enter, break her rules and face punishment, with fire, with drought, with floods. To the Batak tribe, one of the seven indigenous groups in the area, she is to be respected, and they know to leave some areas undisturbed. Much of her land and the creatures in it remain undiscovered, secrets only the earth knows. Bai is known as Cleopatra's Needle, an area with 61 endemic and 31 globally threatened species, from pangolins to whale sharks, bear cats to turtles. And as the human population looms closer and closer, threatening her very doorstep, Bai remains the last pristine forest in the Philippines. I conserve forest. This is KM. If I'm serving the indigenous peoples and the local communities that live in and around these forests, that are tied to these forests through their tradition, through their culture, through their family lineage, then my job is done. KM is a National Geographic Explorer and the co-founder of the Center for Sustainability, PH, a women-led youth environmental organization. Together with her team, she works with Indigenous communities to protect and preserve forests. And one of the ways they do that is by creating legally bound protected areas. In other words, they create national parks. And so the way that we've found is most effective is through three very simple steps. Number one is organizing our communities and mobilizing the Indigenous peoples. Number two is scientific research, so working with experts and scientists 
to understand why these forests are so important. And then number three, very tricky, very empowering, but also very fun, is political lobbying and getting up on stage or in boardrooms to make our voices heard. The islands of Palawan are the last ecological frontier of the Philippines. In a country once covered in 95% forest, down to only 3% today, Palawan retains half of its original forest cover. And now we're down to 3%, which, if you take a second, is really mind-boggling. For an entire island to be completely covered, or an entire archipelago, an entire country to be completely covered, to now there only being 3% left. And of that 3%, a key bastion for this last remaining pristine rainforest is on the island of Palawan. But as an area rich with natural resources, it's also become a target for development. Many of KM's team grew up on Palawan. They watched as more and more was taken from the area, how the population increased as people migrated from places depleted of resources, decimated by typhoons. They saw the forest they loved, the reefs they swam in, begin to change. The summer butterflies started appearing in February. The turtles they swam with were harder to find. We're so rich in resources, but that also means that we're very vulnerable to exploitation and to development interests, especially as we face so many resource challenges moving forward. So they decided to do something about this change by creating a critically protected area right at home. But for the government to provide legal designation, they needed the support of the indigenous Batak tribe. Cam and her two colleagues, Jess and Edgar, squeezed into the back of a single motorcycle and drove 70 kilometers into the forest. They pushed past dense foliage, drove through 10 river crossings, balancing bags of rice and coffee they brought as gifts, until they reached the Batak community. It was their first face-to-face encounter, and they had hoped to discuss their plan, the Cleopatra's Needle Project. But things didn't go as they'd expected. When we first started working with the indigenous Batak, I don't think any of us really knew what we were getting into. (laughs) To be honest, the first time that we met, it was a really interesting experience of kind of all of us eyeing each other out. The Batak needed to provide their free and prior informed consent, enshrined in the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act of the Philippines. It also meant taking time to build relationships and overcoming mistrust from the past. I don't think I realized the weight of the work that we were doing, that we were working with communities that historically have lost all access to land, that we're dealing with communities that have been disenfranchised for so long. And so in these meetings, they're loaded because they're full of suspicion at the beginning and we don't know where this is going to lead. Everything was about developing trust, showing the Batak they were in it for the long haul. At first, no one on KM's team spoke Batak, so they learned. As they developed a shared language, they also developed a deeper understanding of the community and their relationship with the forest. The Batak are hunter-gatherers. They gather what they need for that day or for the next three days, and then they let the resources rest, and when they need it again, they come back. And that means that 
it gives time for the forest to recover. And that's the reason why we still have this area. That connection to the forest is deeply embedded in Batak culture, contributing to their sense of self. It's very common that a Batak person is named specifically after the tree that they were born under or an animal that was present when they were born. It's very much tied to their place and where they are. They don't want to be anywhere else but specifically on their land because this is where every single memory, not just of themselves, but of their mother and their father and their brothers and sisters, it's all connected to this area. We look at Google Maps and we see streets, right? Streets and avenues and restaurants and landmarks. They look at the forests and they will say, we're going to walk to the third point with the tree that has the scratch on it. And then the other one will go, oh, yeah, I know that scratch. Okay, and then when we get there, let's turn left because there's a little brook where the frogs live. And that's how they talk. They have a map of the forest. It's imprinted in their brains. And we can be walking for days and they know exactly where they are. To KM, protecting Cleopatra's needle is more than just conserving the forest. It's what the forest means to a disappearing community, what it means to be Batak whose conception of the world is tied to this land. There's a story to every river crossing. There's a story to every tree. If we lose that area, it's like we as humanity lose this connection. KM and her team continue to visit the Batak, sharing meals, engaging in discussions. After four years, the community leaders still seemed unwilling to give their consent on the designation process. The Batak cared about their home, but the mistrust, colored by years of trauma from outside forces, ran deep. Then, things finally came to a head. This was the final community meeting where they were going to either give us consent or kick us out of the project completely. And we were sitting there, we'd been sitting in this meeting for about two hours already. We have all of the government agencies that we've dragged out to witness this kind of permission-giving ceremony. We have our Indigenous tribal leaders. We have the staff of CS. And they're saying yes, and they're saying no, then they're saying yes, and they're saying no. Things went on like this for a while. It seemed like after four years of work, bringing government officials into the forest for this last meeting, the project was on the verge of failure. And then something changed. Finally, we get to a point where a woman, the sole female tribal counselor, she stands up. And she says that CS have been driving in and out, have been crossing these rivers. They've done the work. We either accept them or we don't. But today has to be the day that we give them an answer. And these were predominantly male tribal leaders who, because of suspicion, because of past trauma of losing their lands, were really scared. And because of the words of this woman, they, in that moment turn the entire meeting around and turn the decision-making around. We painted this picture that for every minute that they're not acting, we're losing a tree, we're losing more land, and we're losing our rights. And it was in that moment, it was almost like they could hear the sounds of the tree falling. 
They could hear the heartbreak of losing another piece of their land. They could feel the frustration of their rights being even further eroded. That we turned a corner as a group. The Batak gave their consent to the project. Cleopatra's Needle was designated as a critical habitat that protects 41,350 hectares of land, making it seven times larger than any other critical habitat in the Philippines. And perhaps more important, the designation protects the Batak's home. What communities have done to conserve this area and maintain this heritage cannot be emphasized enough because it's really because of them that we still have this, you know, piece of nature that ties all of us together and ties us to land in ways that many of us no longer have living in big cities. This is national heritage. This critical habitat does not just belong to Palawan, it belongs to our entire nation. I grew up with my mom and I at home with a painting she made when she first migrated to Australia and was homesick. It's a painting of a woman. She's dressed in white, she's barefoot, and she's looking over mountains. The mountains are covered in forest and clouds. I never understood the painting when I was growing up. Then I moved abroad. I did a lot of different kinds of justice work. And then by stroke of serendipity, I ended up back in the Philippines. So we protect this forest area by the skin of our teeth. It's a slog for four years. And then when the area was finally declared, it was like, okay, so what do we do next? Do we continue to do this work? Do we continue to work in forest conservation? In Palawan, my partner and I live in his village. We have this really small bamboo house. And one morning I was in my pajamas. It was about 5 a.m. in the morning and it was really cold. And I looked out and it was covered in fog. The birds were chirping. There's nobody up yet. And I had this moment where I realized that all of my decisions until that moment to come to the Philippines to do this community work, to work specifically on forests. I ended up becoming the woman in my mother's painting. And so from Palawan, we go to the forest of Masungi, where we meet Anne. There are moments when we can feel something isn't right. It's in the silence, the unfamiliar, the uneasiness that pricks at the skin. For Anne Dumiliang, it began with a phone call. I was searching for my dad, and I saw him in a room. I was speaking through the door, and he was on his phone. He was very, very quiet and intense. Anne was 10 years old. Her father was a conservationist, tasked with reforesting 430 hectares of land east of Petra Manila, in an area where the trees had been cut down. Even at the time, Anne could sense that the call was related to his work. 
It was definitely unnerving. And I found out later on the Power Rangers were unjustly detained and put in prison because they said that Power Rangers were carrying guns. It's illegal in the Philippines for park rangers to carry firearms. The guns were planted. I couldn't come to understand how people as gentle as forest rangers who care for the tiniest forms of life (laughs) would be mistaken for carrying guns. It was the first time Anne sensed that the work her father was doing, planting trees and restoring the environment, could carry the threat of danger. The area is now called the Masungi Geo Reserve. It took 20 years for Anne's father to reforest the land, facing similar challenges the entire time. The problems were coming from people who wanted the resources. Timber from the trees, limestone for concrete. Masungi is home to a unique limestone ecosystem. Giant rocks that rose from the ocean floor 60 million years ago. The name comes from the jagged landscape. Masungi means spiked. Today, it's surrounded by lush forest and green canopy. The rocks and trees come alive with sound during lightning storms. Years of rainwater have carved stark patterns into the stone, reminding visitors that the earth is connected, continually changing. And with Manila just downstream, forestry and quarrying companies see the Masungi Geo Reserve as an opportunity, a convenient place to harvest materials. Years later, Anne and her sister Billy would continue their father's work, becoming trustees of the land. It's really, really beautiful, especially if you see it in the morning. Like, you'd see different kinds of pongos releasing spores into the air. When the sun peeks through the trees, it's actually one of the things I love doing. The lianas and the woody vines just embracing the rock formations and the trees along the way. When you're on top of these rocks during the nighttime, there's really a symphony of insects and animals that you hear echoing through the valleys. So you hear insects, cicadas, owls, frogs, all just singing together like an orchestra. And it's really a beautiful sound, and just goes to show how much life there is. But it wasn't always like that. Anne and Billy grew up on the land before it was a forest. It just seemed like any other place. While we were around six to eight years old, he'd take us to Masumi, and at this time it was still barren. We have a few mango trees, but that's pretty much it. Every time we're there, the sun would be scorching hot. And there would be stacks of grass from maintaining the area that would be on the ground. It didn't seem too special yet then. But over time, Anne and Billy saw the results of their father's work. And their relationship with Masungi began to change as well. It made me realize that I've really seen it change through time from a time when it was just all barren and destroyed, through the years it was healing. To the extent, actually, that when people ask me, I tell them that Masuni, this landscape, was ultimately my little brother, who I grew up with 
and who, of course, want to continue growing up with until I'm very old. The Masungi Geo Reserve is located within the Upper Medikina Critical Watershed. Rivers flow through the area, which provide water to Manila and the surrounding region. And the trees play a critical role for the 20 million people living downstream. When it rains, their roots absorb and divert water, which helps prevent flooding. They also hold on to soil, keeping silt from running into the rivers, which keeps the water clean. Without the forest, parts of Manila, including the central business district, would flood during typhoons. The Philippines is actually one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change. Disaster risk mitigation is a big, hot topic in the Philippines. And we always talk about infrastructure improvements, engineering improvements, But if you think about it, if you do not solve the root cause of the problem, and that is the destruction of our ecosystems, then what you're really doing are just band-aid solutions, right? As much as we try to make ourselves believe that we live in urban cities, in a bubble, away from areas like this, that's not the case. We're on Earth. We're ultimately doing all of this to ourselves. With climate change, and typhoons in the Philippines increasing in both intensity and frequency, the Masungi Geo Reserve is considered green infrastructure. It provides natural protection for the people of Manila. In 2016, the Masungi Geo Reserve opened up to the public. Anne and her family created what's known as a sustainable development model. They believe an area can be conserved and developed at the same time in a safe and sustainable way. 30% of Masungi is developed for ecotourism. People can hike the trails, explore rope bridges suspended above the forest, view the canopy from the massive limestone structures. The other 70% is protected, restored, reforested. Education plays a key role. Conservation begins with understanding, having a relationship with the land. It came from a huge amount of interaction through so many years to really understand the ins and outs of the place that we are moving in. How can you begin to talk about sustainability when you have no idea what you're supposed to sustain? But preserving the land also means protecting it. And while there have always been threats to Masungi, things started to get worse over time. It really began to change when 50 armed men showed up at the Geo-Reserve. They said they had a legal stake to the land, but didn't have any proof. Instead, they destroyed barriers in the forest, forcing their way in. When Ranger tried to stop them, the men opened fire. No one was hurt, but the incident brought home the reality of what people would do to get to the trees and the limestone on the Geo-Reserve. Anne and the Rangers were undeterred. You need to protect the land first. And that is why we're very much focused on making sure that there's enforcement around illegal activities and development aggressors that enter the watershed when they shouldn't be entering. There are lots of talk about reforestation and tree planting and all of that, but it really cannot exist without combating deforestation and protecting the land where the forest exists. The incidents didn't stop. 
People tried to fence off parts of the forest, brought fake logging permits, dressed up as priests and indigenous people and laid claim to the land. Often, turning these people away led to threats of violence. For the past eight years, the watchdog Global Witness has ranked the Philippines as the deadliest country in Asia for environmental defenders. But even with all the difficulties, all the challenges, Anne, her family, and the rangers refused to back down. Then, in July 2021, something happened that shook the Masungi Geo Reserve. It was 9 p.m. Darkness covered the forest floor as it hummed with the sound of insects, frogs, and cicadas. Exhausted after a full day's work monitoring the forest and pruning the trees, two rangers returned to their station, settled down for the night, and went to sleep. Then, suddenly, When they were found, the rangers were rushed to the hospital. One was shot in the neck, the other, the head. If either wound was even centimeters in the wrong direction, the rangers wouldn't have made it. So in July, our rangers were actually shot at. Two of them almost died. One was shot in the head, and another was shot on the neck. And give it a movement of maybe 0.25 inches, the outcome would be so different. After three days, they were back in their stations. That's how much they love the place. Because they know no one else will do it. And no one else has reached that level of understanding that they have. That's why I'm so proud of them. That's why we can't give up, right? We've already done so much. We've already given up so much. It takes a lot of strength and an understanding that this is a vocation to be okay with moving in a forest without signal, without law enforcement, <laughs> without government structures to take care of you, without electricity, just to take care of the mountains. And when we're talking about enforcement, we're not talking about people who will do petty crimes, right? These are people who do not mind unleashing destruction upon so many just so they could fulfill their selfish interests. Those are the kinds of people they encounter up in the mountains. These are people who carry guns. These are people who have murderous pasts. And yet they do it. They hold the fort. They stand at the front lines because they know that what they're doing is very meaningful and that it's worth it. The threats continue. But recently, it's become apparent that Anne, her family, and the rangers aren't alone. People from all walks of life, from chefs to artists, students to explorers, do what they can to provide support and keep a diligent watch over Masungi. And in March 2022, Anne received a resolution in support for the Geo Reserve, signed by 100 chieftains and elders from the indigenous communities in the area. It was a powerful message. Masungi is doing nothing wrong. We are behind them. Uh, this is going to be difficult. Um, people were against are on the field. They're violent. 
They've attempted to kill our rangers. They live right beside these communities. And for them to stick out their heads for us like that, despite not even having cell phones, <laughs> having been oppressed for centuries from the colonial period up until now, is just such an uplifting and warm thing for them to do. It's not easy for them to stick up for us, considering who we're going against. And they did. It shows our rangers, shows us that we're not alone. And that there are many others who believe in what we do and who now understand that, you know, they can also do something to make this work. There's a special place Anne goes to in the forest when she needs to think. It's a place that has a really interesting young canopy. I like it because of the way the shadows of the leaves dance on the floor. And when it rains, you get to hear the rain but it doesn't drop on you <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, and it's just a very quiet and peaceful place. And it also reminds me of the kind of peace and calm I want to bring to them. And the people relying on our success. <laughs> some days, she leans back against the cool rock and talks to the stone expressing her frustration, her fear, her hopes. I've always thought that it's really not just us that's protecting the area. The forests really feel alive to me. And I think it's also taking care of us, <laughs> you know, despite everything that we have to go through to protect. So I do want to think that it's listening <laughs> to what we have to say and that it is comforting and giving us hope that it will all be worth it in the end. This podcast is brought to you by Signal. Live awesome. To learn more about these explorers, watch the National Geographic Planet Possibility Special, where you can learn more about how to protect the wonder of our world. Expedition Earth is produced by National Geographic Asia in partnership with the National Geographic Society. I'm your host, Lily Sedegat. Thank you for listening.